Today's scripture reading is from John 6, verses 25 through 35. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We went up to this place called Caesarea Philippi. And this is way up in the north part of the country, and this would have taken Jesus and the disciples a long time to get up there because they were walking. It took us a long time on a bus. But you go up into the mountain area, and there's this spring at Caesarea, and it's called Philippi after the ruler there, uh, Herod Philip. And there was something really peculiar about this place. There was a giant cave that people thought for hundreds of years was the entrance to hell. They thought it was the entrance to Hades, as they would have called it, the underworld. And then if you just went far enough into that cave, you would descend down into the underworld. Jesus didn't bring his disciples to this place on accident. He brought his disciples to this place so that they could sit right in front of the gates of Hades, and Jesus could ask them a very important question. Who do you say that I am? Who, and, and, and actually, he kind of eases his way into this because before he asks that question, he says, who are other people saying that I am? And the disciples say, some say that you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say you're a prophet. And Jesus says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, who always likes to speak first, said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father who's in heaven revealed it. And on this rock, on this statement of your faith, I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. The reason that Jesus took them there was so that they could look at that place and know that if Jesus is just a prophet, the gates of hell will prevail. Because Moses is dead. Jeremiah's dead. If he's just a good moral teacher, the gates of hell will prevail. Because there have been hundreds of good moral teachers in history. If he's just a military leader there to throw off the occupying force, the gates of hell are going to prevail. Because there have been hundreds of military leaders who have been very strong in their lifetimes and forgotten in history. No, he brought them there because he knew that they needed to stare stare the power of death in the face and say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the one that God sent 
to triumph over death forever. And only if Jesus is the Christ does he have a chance against the gates of hell. We're entering the season of Lent, which is about seven weeks leading up to Easter. And those of you who grew up with Lent understand that this is a season of penitence. It's a season of time where we begin to focus our hearts on Easter, on the resurrection. And those of you who didn't grow up celebrating Ash Wednesday or Lent wondered why people are wandering around with ashes on their forehead on a random day. And it's to symbolize that we have turned our hearts, turned our faces towards Easter. And that's not to say that Jesus isn't risen year-round. It's not like, oh, we're pretending like he isn't risen and then Easter Sunday. But it's like the same way that on your birthday, nothing that special happens on your birthday. It's a remembrance of something that did happen and that we're celebrating. And so we celebrate Easter every year to remind us that every day we serve a living, risen Savior. And that he is the only hope against death. And the question we're going to be asking for the next seven weeks is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? And not just who would you confess him to be with your mouth, because that's, that's easy. I'm asking the question, if somebody followed you around for the next seven weeks, who would they say that you say Jesus is? If they watched your life and they say, for that person, Jesus is everything to them. He is their Savior. He is their Lord. Or would you say, Jesus is somebody that they think about on the weekends? Jesus is kind of an accessory to their life that when things go wrong, they turn to him. Who would you say Jesus is? Well, the Bible provides us with a really, really good set of answers to this question. In the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements that Jesus makes. He says in our text today, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. On Easter Sunday, we'll be talking about what he says in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever trusts in me will live even though he dies. It's probably the most significant thing that anyone ever said in history. I'm the resurrection and the life. This morning, we're going to look at the first I am statement in the Gospel of John. And I want to do a quick background on John. You know, there are four Gospels in our Bibles, and sometimes we ask the question, why four? Why are there four of these? Especially if you're in a Bible reading plan that goes consecutively through the Gospels, you're wondering that. Why do we have four accounts of Jesus' life? And John is a unique account of Jesus' life. The first three are called the synoptics, meaning the same. They seem the same. But John is a little bit different. And one of the reasons is because John probably knew about the other Gospels when he wrote his Gospel. He probably had either read or talked to or known about what was written in the first three, and he had something else that he wanted to say, something slightly different. He wanted to make an addition to these other Gospels. In fact, one of the commentators put it this way. I thought this is such a great way to describe John's Gospel. One of the things I love about John is that he reduces everything to the central question that each of us is confronted with. It's as if John wrote his entire gospel as an answer to the question Jesus asked his disciples in the other three gospels, who do you say that I am? It's almost like John wanted to get the final word and make it really clear just who Jesus is. In fact, he tells us that at the very end of his gospel in John chapter 21, verse 30, he says, now, Jesus did so many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. In fact, earlier he says, in fact, there are so many of these that if you wrote them all down, the whole world could not contain 
books about what Jesus has done. And the Christian publishing industry has tried to prove that true ever since. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, having, by believing in him, you might have life in his name. During this series, I don't, I don't just want you to believe certain things about Christ, although that's important. And I, I don't just want you to think about Christ, although that's really important. I want you to have what John says, life because you know Christ. See, what we're talking about this morning, Jesus is the bread of life. He gets into this conversation with the people around him right after he does this amazing miracle. He feeds 5,000 people. And after that, the next day, the crowds come looking for him. And this is probably uh, either a Sabbath day or a day that Jesus is going to the synagogue in Capernaum. We find that out later in this passage. And Jesus looks around and sees that these people are hungry. And they haven't come because of the, the miracle and the teaching. They've come for a free lunch. And so the people show up, and Jesus sees in their hearts, and he begins this dialogue with them. And Jesus says in the beginning, if you look in your Bibles, they find him and they say, when did you come here? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't you get the impression that Jesus doesn't really like small talk? In the Gospel of John especially, he always cuts straight to the chase. He doesn't bother with the question that's being asked a lot of the time. He goes right to the heart of the issue. And so this dialogue, I want to break this up into two observations about this group that Jesus is talking to. The first one in the first half, 26 through 29, is that we quickly find out that this crowd is used to God's stuff, but they're not used to God himself. This crowd is really used to the things of God. They're used to being around godly people. They're used to talking about God. But they clearly are surprised when they encounter God himself. So Jesus immediately issues a command. He says, you're here because you got a free meal. Verse 27, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. The physical bread that Jesus gave them when he multiplied the loaves and the fish was supposed to be a pointer. It was supposed to be a sign of a truer and better bread that he came to give them. But what happens so often in the Gospels, and it actually happens a lot more than we'd like to admit in our life, we mistake the sign for the real thing. They thought the real thing is he's come to feed us forever. And Jesus said, actually, it's not about coming to give bread. It's about coming to be bread. Jesus didn't come to give the things of God. He came as God so that you could be reunited with God. It's all about knowing him. That's the point he's making to these people. They are so accustomed to being around what we would call Christian stuff. Because it's easy and it's nice. The church at its best is a wonderful place to be. And it's got great people in it. And there's peace that comes through it. And it's positive and encouraging on the radio. And it's wonderful to be around Christian stuff. But it's easy to settle for that and never actually encounter the living God. It's all about knowing Him. I used to have a buddy who was the manager at Tacova's Boots. 
if you guys have seen those. They started out as an internet company selling boots. They have a store in Oklahoma City. And I had a really good friend who um, was the manager there. And so that comes with certain perks. So I would wear my boots in there, and he would oil them up and clean them off. And it was just, it was awesome. We'd get to chat every time I went in there. And so I told my brother, who doesn't know this guy, hey, put on your boots, come with me, we'll go, we'll get our boots cleaned. So we go in there, I say hi, give him a big hug, he puts me up on the shoe thing where you're sitting there and he's shining them and talking and we're having a great conversation and I'm looking over my brother, you know, kind of like, you know what's about to happen. And I get down there and uh, shake his hand, he goes, hey, thank you guys for coming in and turns around to go help other customers. And my brother is looking at me like, looking at his feet, looking at me and I was like, you got to know him, I guess. You just got to know him. He paid no attention to him. He doesn't know him. He came in with me, doesn't know he's my brother. All he knows is that we know each other, and so he's willing to give of himself, but he doesn't know him. And it doesn't matter that you're in the store. It doesn't matter that you're wearing the boots. If you don't know the guy, you're not going to get your boots shined. And I told my brother, next time I'll make an introduction. Next time I'll make an introduction. Of course, he doesn't work there anymore, so... (laughs) But it's all about who you know. It's about the relationship that we have with each other. And Jesus is saying the same thing to these people. You've been around, you're wearing the right clothes, you're saying the right things, but we don't have a relationship. These people don't understand that everything in their life, all the religious trappings, all the rituals, everything they've been doing has been leading them to this person. And he's right before their eyes and they miss him. Many of you know my story about how I came to Christ. I grew up in a Christian home, wonderful Christian parents, went to Christian school, was around all kinds of Christian stuff, and didn't know God. It's possible to grow up right next to God and never truly surrender your life to him. And it wasn't until I was in high school and I was having a dream in the middle of the night, and in the dream, this is just such a good picture of what it looks like to be around God but not to know him. There were all these pictures in the dream of great things that had to do with God. Christian camp, Sunday school, youth retreats, K-life, all the stuff that I had done as a kid. And then in the middle of all that, everything vanished. And as I sat up in bed, there was a voice that said, Cole, if you want to be content in life, it will only be through me. I didn't know God talked to people that way. So I went back to sleep. And the next morning when I got up, I thought, that had to be God. And I realized for the first time in my life, I don't really know him. And so I got down on my knees on the side of my bed and I said, God, I want to know you. I want to give my life to you for one month. And we'll see how it goes. And so my faith was very weak at that point, and I said, we're going to try this out for one month of going all in, knowing you, trusting you, and it's a long story I can tell you at some other point, but I never, ever looked back. I kept on renewing after that, month after month after month after month. It's different to know him. It's different to actually be in contact with him. And Jesus is standing before these people, offering them something so much better than bread. He's offering them himself. So Jesus says in verse 28, they say, or they say back to Jesus, okay, so what do we have to do 
to get this bread always. And Jesus says, there's only one thing to do. You must believe in him who God has sent. You know something really interesting about the Gospel of John? He never uses the noun faith in the Gospel of John. This is really interesting. All the other synoptic Gospels use the word faith. Of course, faith is present all over your Bible. But in the Gospel of John, he never uses the noun faith. He always uses the verb, which we would translate as believe. Now, in Greek, they're the same. It's pistuo and pistis. They're the same word. But John doesn't ever settle for saying have faith. He always says believe, trust, act, Throw yourself into something. And Jesus says, here's the only work that you can ever do to be reunited with God. Throw yourself onto his son. Trust in his son. Put your allegiance in his son. That's the only way to be reunited with him. You can do all the works you want in the world, but if you don't come face to face with him, you don't know him. You don't know him. Well, this is where the conversation gets really interesting. These Jews are not convinced. Okay, look at what they say next. They say, he says, believe in the one whom they sent. They say, so what are you going to do to convince us that you're really who you say you are? What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? This is really a bold question. Okay, this all sounds great, but how do we know we can trust you? See, the second observation I want to make is they were relying on what God had done in the past, not what God was doing in the present. They were relying on what God had done in the past, but they weren't relying on what God was doing in the present. So they had heard of bread of life before. In fact, if you, at this time, if you were a good Jew, this would have been really resonant for you because bread of life is one of the ways that they described manna. So in Exodus, when the people come out of Egypt, God feeds them with manna. And manna is funny because we're not exactly sure what manna was like. In fact, the word manna, if you remember the story, means, what is it? They go down and they see this bread falling from heaven and they say, manna, what is it? And it stuck and they ate it for years and years and years and God sustained them with manna and with meat in the wilderness. It was one of the greatest things that God had ever done. And so this gives you a little insight. They weren't that impressed with feeding 5,000 people. They just weren't. To us, that's like, I mean, how could you see that and not think this is clearly the Son of God? They tell their kids stories about God feeding a million people every day for 40 years. 5,000 people is nothing. So they say, give us a sign. Jesus is not outmatched by this conversation. They believe that the greatest thing that God had done was send Moses. And Jesus is about to show them that something better than Moses is here. The greatest miracle that God had done was feed them for 40 years. But Jesus is about to show them something much greater than that is about to happen. So the rabbis had a saying at this point that the former redeemer, Moses, had caused manna to descend. And in like manner, you will know the next Messiah when he also causes manna to come down. So Jesus enters this conversation. They say, what sign do you perform? Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. It is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus is about to confront their expectations again. In fact, he does this in two ways. Jesus, first of all, says, it wasn't Moses who gave you manna. Okay, let's get one thing straight. Moses did not give you manna. God gave you manna. 
I love D.A. Carson, who's one of the commentators in the Gospel of John, says, Jesus is persuaded that far too much attention has been lavished on Moses and far too little attention has been lavished on God. So he says, it's not Moses who gave you manna from heaven, but God. And God, notice the tense change here, gives. Look at what it says. It says, it was not Moses in the past, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. See, here's the problem with the old manna. And this is how Jesus is answering the question, can you do better than that? People ate manna for 40 years and then died. They ate manna consistently for 40 years, and it did something for them physically. It did nothing for them spiritually. In fact, the quotation that Jesus is referring to here is probably not from the original account in Exodus. It's probably from Psalm 78, which gives a recap of what happened with the people of Israel. And listen to this. Jesus says, or Jesus is quoting from this psalm when he says, manna came from heaven. It says, then the Lord was full of wrath, and fire kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above to open the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat, gave them grain of heaven. Men ate the bread of angels. He sent them the food of abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind and rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. They ate and were filled. He gave them what they craved. But even before God had satisfied their cravings, while the food was still in their mouth, the anger of God rose against them. Remember what was happening in the wilderness. The people had been delivered from Egypt, and they were eating manna every day from God. They were following a pillar of fire and a cloud. Moses was doing signs and wonders. He was feeding them. He was, uh, God was bringing water out of a rock, and they were wandering in the desert, and they still rebelled against God. They still rebelled against God. Jesus is pointing out the comparative merits of these breads of life. One bread of life will sustain you physically, but it doesn't do anything for you spiritually. This bread of life that Jesus is giving actually is going to do something deeper than what that bread can do. If you believe, you will never die eternally. This is the kind of bread that even if you die physically, nothing can ever happen to you spiritually. In fact, later in the gospel, Jesus says, if you believe in me, then I am going to raise you up on the last day and nothing can snatch you out of my hand. The power of this bread of life is that it secures you eternally. The former bread of life only sustains you for a day at a time physically. So Jesus confronts their expectations of what God has done in the past by telling them what God has done now. And he's actually going to go one step beyond that. Because he's not just contrasting breads. What are, what's that bread like, that manna like, what is this bread like? He's contrasting the entire system of Moses. So think about what they were doing in the time of Moses. Because they were sinful, because they were separated with God, they were making sacrifices every day and every year to postpone their sin. The whole Old Testament covenant is like an elaborate IOU system where an animal is sacrificed on behalf of your sins so that the wrath of God will be stayed for just a while longer. But the blood of sheep and goats can never actually pay for sin. They can only bring the amount back lower, 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 but they can never clear 
your account. Jesus says in verse 48, later down from where we read in this passage, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my own flesh. It's my own flesh. Jesus says, I'll do you one better than Moses. If you eat this bread, you never have to sacrifice again. If you eat this bread, if you believe in this Savior, if you look at what God is doing in your life now, he's giving you an opportunity to have the bill completely paid. No guilt, no shame, no angry God, no wrath of God still resting on you. Instead, this gift, this bread of life, if you eat this bread, you're right with God again forever. So it's not just about what God had done in the past. It's what God was now doing in the present. Jesus didn't just come to give bread. He came to be bread. So who do you say that Jesus is? Well, if you say that he's the bread of life, what are you actually saying? You're saying that Jesus is God himself coming down to reunite us with him as a final payment to sustain us forever. That he is true God, true blood sacrifice, true sustenance that our souls were made for. And if you believe in him, you're reunited with God forever. So an interesting thought occurred to me this week. What is the application of this? Right, Because we want to get to the concrete. What should we do about this? Okay, Jesus is the bread of life. Awesome. Well, at first I thought, well, so the application is, will you make Jesus the bread of life of your life? But that's, that's not it. He is the bread of life. Whether you believe it or not, you don't make him the bread of life. He is. Whether you know about him or not, if you'd been born or not, if you trust in him or not, he is the bread of life. There's only one. He is it. He will be for all eternity. The question is not, will you acknowledge that he's the bread of life? The question is, will you eat? Will you eat? What do you do with bread of life? You don't stand around and look at it. You don't put it on a pedestal to display it. You eat it. Will you eat? Will you take part in what Jesus has done? So what does it look like to actually eat the bread of life? This is getting very abstract. You know, the Jews later in this conversation are like, what is going on with this guy? He says, the, the bread that you must eat is my flesh and the blood that you drink. And they're like, this is so weird. And Jesus puts it down on the bottom shelf for us. What does it mean to eat the bread of life? Let me give you three, three things as we close. The first one is to find your fulfillment in him. To find your soul's fulfillment in him. See, you were made in such a way that your soul is actually looking for fulfillment at all times. We have been made not just, um, we, we don't just argue whether or not we have an altar in our heart. It's just who's going to be on it. Because your soul was made in such a way that it is looking for something to worship. I love this G.K. Chesterton quote, the object of an open mind is the same as an open mouth, to shut on something solid. Your open soul is desiring to close on something. And so it's not a question of looking, it's a question of what's already there. What is it your deepest level of satisfaction? Jesus is the bread of life means I go to him before anything else, to find my fulfillment. And the easy way to check this is, and if you want to do a little inventory in your heart this week, just think about the times that you are alone, 
ashamed, sad, hungry, angry, tired, where do you turn? Where do you turn? What do you go to when you're in need to satisfy you? Do you go places that will give you a short-term fulfillment, or do you go to the bread of life? And there's all kinds of ways that we do this, and some of them are, are not bad, but if you're looking for something to take the edge off of what you're feeling, where do you go? Chances are, that's your God. Chances are, that's your God. Where do you go to be satisfied? Secondly, the, eating the bread of life means actually experiencing him. And I, and I want to be clear about this. There's a lot of ways that we play games with ourselves where we can go through all kinds of motions and rituals without really experiencing God. In fact, you can do a quiet time every day and never talk to God. You can read your Bible and never talk to God. You can come to church and worship and never get face-to-face with God. But if you're going to eat the bread of life, it means that you're going to come into contact with him. You know, a show that we love is The Great British Baking Show. You guys watch that show? We, I mean, we're already caught up. I wish there was another season out. But we watch that show all the time. And the funny thing about those shows is you get so invested and then, and you're watching these people cook all these wonderful meals, and they're trying, and it's awesome, and at the end, you're hungry. Because I wish maybe there would be a way to do like a pack that you get in the mail that goes with the episode or something, so where when they're doing it, you could actually be eating. That would, wouldn't that be awesome? But instead, you watch these people eat all of this great stuff, and then at the end, you're like, I'm hungry. And I worry that that's exactly what a lot of people's spiritual life is like. They come here and they're like, man, all these Christians, they're just wonderful and full of joy. And when they read the Bible, they get a lot out of it and they worship. And I love the way they're so passionate. But at the end, I just, I leave hungry because you're not eating. God doesn't have any grandkids. There's no vicarious eating. Nobody can do this for you. Only you can take hold and eat the bread of life. So do you have times in your life where you're getting face-to-face with God every day? Are you having times where you don't just read the words on the page, you look up and you say, God, be with me. God, I need you. God, I want to learn about you. God, would you, would you be present in my life today? Would you bring to mind your truth? And by your spirit, would you help me to walk in your ways? God has to be experienced And there's all kinds of great ways. I'm not by any means, I love the Bible and I love what we're doing here. And all these things are ways to get you to the point where you're consuming the bread of life. Last thing, how do you eat the bread of life? Well, you begin to be changed by him. You begin to be changed by him. I've said it before and you'll probably get tired of it. You were designed to be reunited with the living God. Your whole life here, the point of being born, is that you would be reunited with your father. The Bible is a big story about a family reunion, and you get to be a part of it. Your whole design, all your skills, all your talents, all your longings were put in you so that you could be face-to-face with your father forever. And the Christian life is lived in motion. So one of the ways that we do that, one of the ways that we experience God is by being changed by him. I heard this great analogy this week, and I'll I'll end with this. It's from Thomas Chalmers, who was a Puritan pastor in the 19th century. And he has a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He starts with this metaphor. 
if you had all the sophisticated scientific equipment in the world, I mean, you've got the greatest lab in the world, and we gave you a single problem to solve. And the problem is, how do you get all the air out of a glass beaker? How would you do it? You could put all the scientific equipment in to try to extract the air and try to pull it out and create a vacuum. But at the end of the day, you know the best way to do that? Turn on the tap, fill it with water. That's the best way. And what he says in the sermon is the best way for you to have renewed desires, the best way to eat and be satisfied is to be filled with something. It's no use to go through your life trying to not love the things that you used to love and not sin and not do the things that God's told you not to. The best thing to do is to start doing the things that God has commanded you to do. Start loving him, obeying him, walking in his ways, filling your life with the community that he's designed. That's the best way for your life to change is to be filled with something. In fact, it's the only way for your life to change. So when we come, it's such a great metaphor. The bread of life actually fills us. We start living by his promises. We start actually putting into practice the things he says in our life. And before you know it, your craving for spiritual junk food is turned to a craving for the bread of life by experiencing him, by being changed by him. You know, in the beginning of this gospel, the disciples come and they say, where are you staying? How can we get to be with you? What what would it look like to follow you? And Jesus says, come and see. Come have your life changed. Feast in your life on the bread of life. It was the one thing that your palate was created for. So as Becca comes to lead us in worship, we're going to do communion this morning. And there's all these arguments in the commentators about, is this a passage about communion? Or is it not about communion? Is, it re- is this really about the Lord's table or is that later? And I'll just leave it at this. What he's talking about here is exactly what we're doing in communion. When you come to take communion, you take the bread and you take the cup, and what you are doing is you're proclaiming the bread of life is the only thing for me. What you're doing is exactly what Jesus says. What is the work of God? To believe in the one that he has sent. And so each time we take communion, we come and we take the bread and we say, sustain me, fill me, bring me face to face with my Father, fill me with your Spirit so I can walk in the things that He's planned for me. And so this morning as we come up and we take the elements, you're coming and you're saying to God, I want the bread of life. I'm losing my taste for everything else. Fill me with a desire for you. I don't want your stuff. I don't want all the trappings surrounding it. I want you. And when we eat and when we drink together, we're proclaiming as a group of people devoted to God, this is our life. This sustains us. This satisfies us until we get to eat with him in eternity. So I'm going to pray for us and then take uh, these and you guys come up and grab the elements. And then as we sing uh, together, Everybody gets one, I'll come back up at the end and we'll take communion together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to physically come and eat. Father, thank you that as we do this, we're reminded that you are all that we were designed for. You're all we need, you're all that satisfies, you're all that we could ever want. Father, I pray this week as we 
go about our daily lives and have so many things that we're doing that you would remind us that the thread that runs through all of it is your love for us. The death of your son for us. The blood that cleanses us from everything we've done so that we can live renewed. Lord, take these elements that are so pedestrian, just bread and juice, and remind us of the powerful, wonderful sacrifice of your son. Help us to taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name we pray.